Assalamu alaikum brothers and sisters. Welcome back to another episode of the Remaster Podcast hosted by me, Abdullah Freeman. And we're here today joined by a very special guest. I'd like to introduce our Imam, uh, Imam John Edward. I hope I said it right, Imam. <laughs> we just discussed it before. No, it's perfect. Oh, yeah. Mashallah. Welcome to the show, Imam. Alhamdulillah, Abdullah. It's a blessing to be here with you today. Alhamdulillah. And today we'll be talking about a very special person, very special, uh, uh, the memory of a very special person, mashallah, uh, Allah yarhamu, the uh, esteemed Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Yusuf Al-Qaradawi, you know, who passed away last year. It makes it a year now, right? Yeah. yeah, 2022, passed away uh, at the age of 96 years old. Um, and this episode will be just to explore his life, explore some of his uh, rulings and exploring the role of a uh, mujtahid in uh, society, you know. Um, any Anything you want to say before we start, Imam? No, just um, I'm really excited to talk on this subject. Uh, I've, I've been through many years now, 25 years of Islam and uh, some of my clear directional clarity came from being exposed to many of the writings and works and um, videos of Sheikh Al-Qaradah. I mean, mashallah. But just to give you guys a quick background about our esteemed guest today, Imam John converted to Islam in 1998, as he said, 25 years, mashallah. Shortly after, he journeyed throughout the Muslim world studying uh, theology at various institutions as well as traditional study circles on classical texts for seven years. He's been a full-time imam in various uh, states, namely uh, Florida and Oklahoma. He has been the imam for the uh, Muslim Community Center of Charlotte, North Carolina since 2017, as well as social change. He stays uh, active promoting solutions to the problems of the world and building coalitions with others on common grounds of moral interest. So once again, assalamu alaikum to our guest, imam. Um, thank you for being on. And, you know, to transition. Yes, oh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but to transition into it, you know, one thing thinking about the uh, Sheikh Al Qaradawi, I think about the uh, ayat in uh, Surah Nahl, which is the 16th chapter of the Quran, 40, 43rd ayat, the second half of the ayat where it says, Fasalu ahla dhikri in kuntum la right? Like, if you don't know, ask those who know, the people of knowledge, right? And it applies to us who are layman Muslims, right? For lack of a better term, just everyday, regular, non-scholarly Muslim, which is majority of the ummah, you know? But today we're talking about somebody who really took on that responsibility and really lived that responsibility of being amongst those who were the ta'alamun, right? Those who knew, right? Um, Sheikh Al-Qaradawi, you know? Um, Imam, where do you want to start off talking about the, the, uh, the Sheikh, you know? I mean, to give a little bit about his background, I mean, I think he, he was born in 1926 in, in Cairo or somewhere. Actually, I think it was a village outside, you know, somewhere in the west of Egypt. And he just came up to the Azhar system. Azhar is one of the great institutions of, of our history as Muslims uh, right. in Egypt. And, you know, he just showed and proved his whole way through. Like, he was top of his class in every single level. He wrote in very unique subjects. He did his PhD thesis in relating modern reality of zakat distribution and the proper uh, understanding, because zakat can get pretty complicated depending on um, how you're dealing with circumstances. And throughout history, there's been all kinds of different opinions. 
he basically put together a treatise that is used as curriculum in many graduate studies uh, universities for Islam. And then, you know, just carried on and on. You know, so he's just someone that, you know, he, he was part of the Muslim Brotherhood when he was young and he got put in jail simply for uh, believing that Islam is something that should be part of everything in our life. He was very much a part of that revivalist reform that says Islam is not like just some rituals or some beliefs and it's not like some affiliation. It's more of a conviction of heart and mind that leads to a way of living that every every affair in your life is somehow governed by the light of revelation. And so um, that's how he, he brought it. Unfortunately, in his homeland of Egypt, he was forced to migrate to Qatar. And then we see in, in Qatar, he basically started off just as a principal of a, of a uh, high school, Islamic school. And then slowly but surely, he built their universities, became the dean of uh, Sharia and establishing the curriculums and, and just writing book after book after book. I think he's written over 200 books. I mean, he was basically just something else, you know. And I mean, if you've ever seen him and, and I had a chance to see him, he came to Kuwait while I was there at a conference he's just a presence that is felt and it's a it's you feel the sincerity you feel the strength of faith you feel the clarity of vision and the and the depth of of, of broad horizons and understanding islam and the people so i think that's kind of like a, a a simple um you know introduction to his background as 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 a great scholar someone who touched the world in so many different ways and and you know, I, I really think that a lot of people should should have a good understanding of such a, a great giant that lived in in our time. Rahimullah Taala. No, what's one thing you would say about this Sheikh that made him that made him stand out? You know, you said you were there and you felt his presence. It, it was there. You know, uh, Sheikh Yasser Qadi said the same thing about when he passed away. It was like, you know, not to compare different Mashaikh, right? But his it was something about him that made him very universally loved by a lot of people around the world. Now, of course, somebody of that stature will be polarizing to a degree, right? Not everybody's going to like you. Even me, who's in the middle of nowhere, right? Joe Schmo, he has somebody who doesn't like him. He has people who likes him, right? But what made yeah. the Sheikh so beloved, you believe? It was his, it was the apparent sincerity, you know, it's not our job to decide what the nature of people's hearts are. But everything in his presentation, in his books, in his uh, meetings uh, on the Sharia al Hayat and Al Jazeera, and all of the different, many different conferences and speeches that he gave, you just felt a very strong sense of of faith that is governed by a very deep understanding of the religion. So he was known as Imam al Wasatiyah. So uh, the the notion of moderation and balance as a fundamental quality, as as mentioned in the exact middle verse of Surah Al-Baqarah, كَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا لِتَكُونُوا شُهَدَاءَ عَلَى النَّاسِ وَيَكُونُوا الرَّسُولُ عَلَيْكُمْ شَهِيدًا The ayah tells us with this message, with this revelation, you have been made that balanced, moderate, middle path nation so that you could be a witness upon mankind and that the Prophet ﷺ would be a witness for you on the Day of Judgment. And so he brought back between, so for example, um, we had a lot of stagnancy in our history where people were just parroting rules and uh, people who are known to be scholars are basically just memorizers of texts and they don't think for themselves. 
They can tell you the principles to derive rulings, but they would never use them because they have just fallen into stagnancy. And they're just uh, glorifying their teachers who are people like them, uh, you know. And, and then you had people that were, um, you know, going away from Islam and moving into secular modernism or um, some sort of rigid um, attitude of us and them worldview of, of kind of clash of civilizations. He was bringing it together why, uh, while so many people were confused about where we fit in the modern world him and many other scholars who came before him, but he he came out and really laid down the foundation in so many different ways for that clarity of, of what is it, what does it mean to be balanced on the middle path of the proper understanding of Islam? And so, so many people who, uh, so I'll give you actually one story on this point. It's just, it's, it's, I was in Kuwait and um, I lived in a, in a small neighborhood called, called Al Andalus Um and the, the imam, uh, there's many mosques there and, and many imams, so we're not backbiting anybody. But the imam in that mosque, um, I got to talking with him because of something he said in his sermon. And he, he basically just threw Sheikh Qaradawi under the bus, Allah And he was calling him, you know, like a Mu'tazilite, like a, a philosopher who's, who's misguided. And I said, uh, I said, so if you think he's a Mu'tazilite, what if I gave you a book? That he wrote that al-aqidah bain al-salaf wal-khalaf that I have read, and you will see that if you deem yourself to be quote unquote salafi, you're going to find you will agree with him on so much on a whole lot. He said, "No way." So I gave him the book, and the beautiful thing is he was a person of nasiha. Like he he, this is a man that even though he has said that very confidently in his khutbah, he wanted to see what the dalil was. What's your evidence? And so he read this. It's a book that's like 200 pages. It's not huge. And he, you know, he always makes his books very accessible and easy to follow. Um, but it's very deep in analyzing the history of creed and theological differences and where they came and why and how that happened. The guy came up to me, uh, you know, this sheikh, mashallah, and he's telling me after like a month or month and a half, he said, Subhanallah, wallahi, I, I never knew that he was such a scholar. I had no idea. I've just been hearing from so-and-so and so-and-so that he's this and that and the other. And that's why it's about, Sheikh, you know, listening to backbiting, of all things of someone who's committed their whole life to Islam and written all of these books, um, you should definitely make sure, you know, uh, don't ever follow and claim to be a promoter of something you're not sure about. Mm-hmm. So um, he actually did uh, <laughs> announce that he had ma- made a mistaken statement and that he has learned so uh, at the at the khutbah, you know, so it was before much. the khutbah started, but I thought it was very humble of him. But it's just that that kind of essence that when you are exposed, so there's a lot of people from, for example, Pakistan, um, they have a very, you know, strict, you know, observance of the Hanafi school of thought, which mm-hmm. there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It works for them. It has a history. There's politics involved. There's um, the Ottoman Empire. There's their uh, tradition. And that's fine. So um, one of the great scholars, uh, uh, Mufti Taqidin Usmani, who's seen as like the grand mufti of Pakistan, Allah Hafadu, um, he actually met with Sheikh Al-Qaradawi in Mecca. And he tells the story that I had been told and I had seen him and I've heard certain opinions that he has and I had a bad feeling. But he said, after meeting him, I had nothing but the greatest respect and saw him of the highest form of scholars that we have um, in our day. And so that's the kind of command that he brought. And even when people like Sheikh bin Baz, Allah Yerhamu, he wrote more than one refutation and treatise uh, about the Sheikh. Um, but at the end of the day, Sheikh Qaradawi, when asked about that, 
he said, I have nothing but respect for Sheikh bin Baz. And he, he has his right to his opinions and he holds firmly to certain uh, positions. And that's fine. And and if he feels critical and he felt I should change my opinion, I've changed my opinions, he says, on some things. But on these things, I did not change my opinion. And and, and we all have different. So he he showed that adab. Al-khilaf, the, 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 the etiquettes of differing with your fellow believers, especially among scholars. And he showed that and modeled that when he had every chance for his followers to shine and say, yeah, that, he's saying that he doesn't know what he's talking He could have done what others did, even those that were detracting him, but he didn't do that. So he had that principle. He was the principled scholar, the principled caller as well. Another thing, I don't want to go too long, but I'll let you. Uh, no, you know, cook, yeah. cook, cook, cook. We, this is all yeah. beautiful information, mashallah. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, the sheikh, he had this thing where people would call him Fadila to sheikh and he would correct them. He said, Inma ana da'i. And I remember whenever I was a new student of knowledge in Michigan in 2002, and I heard that statement that I'm not a, a grand scholar, I'm a caller to Islam. The most noble, he said, the most noble thing anyone can do is promote and show the truth of Islam to others. It's not a matter of having all the right opinions or having this scholarly tradition or having all these pieces of paper behind you or having your um, conferences. It's a matter of how many people are affected by what you do. And he said, we should all strive for that, not like to be the grand scholar who sits on the chair and all of that. So I felt like that kind of humility was just something that, and actually when I heard that at that time, I had only heard negative things about him, but that intrigued me to think about him. And I didn't really catch on to him until about 2005 when I was in Kuwait and I met one of his uh, students and one of the people who were very touched by him, Tariq Swedan, who's one of the you know most influential figures in the Muslim world, uh, especially in Kuwait. Um, and he told me about the things that he had learned from him and turned me on to some of his books. And then, you know, the rest is history. I became basically Madhab Sheikh Al-Qaradawi at that point. <laughs> wow. It's so many. I mean, there's just so many beautiful stories to hear and just examples that you just gave of the Sheikh and his adab not, towards his fellow brothers. And I think that's something that people listening to this podcast should note, right? Like starting with the example you gave of the Sheikh in, uh, I, don't, I don't know the country, but who refuted Sheikh Qaradawi, right? But then decide to look at your dalils and take the nasiha and then tell the people I was wrong, you know, refute himself, right? Take back the claims, you know? I think that's a very important principle that we should adopt as Muslims, right? Because you, you don't want to hold on to something like, yeah, I, I, this is the truth, uh, this I believe this, and then the truth comes to you like, ah, no, 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 because you don't want to be embarrassed, right? We have to take ego out of things. But, you know, one thing, Imam, I want to ask you about this, Sheikh, is, you know, you said... Despite even some Thomas being right, he decided to leave it and he decided just to keep that unity. And that's one thing you see throughout him and that people say about him, that unity. And he was an activist as well. Why do you believe unity was so grounded inside of the Sheikh's philosophy? Why was he just so upon that, right? Even if he knows he may be right, keeping the collective whole together was better than, all right, I'm right. You guys are wrong. You guys have to conform to me. Why was that? It's just it's just the principle of knowing the Prophet Sallallahu and the the message that we have, and how the truth operates. A lot of people interpreted this ayah in many places to mean some sort of forceful political establishment of truth. But what it means is the Prophet was sent with the truth and that if you follow it and show it, it will be known to be superior. It doesn't need to be forced. 
to be superior. That is a lingu- linguistic connotation of the ayah, but by by having the truth. So the Sheikh's point that of reference when people would challenge him, he'd say, look, those people have opinions. They have evidences that they use. Listen to what they say and the evidence that they bring. And then you can listen to what I say and you're free to follow whatever you want. And this is my conviction and the Sheikh has every right to his conviction. And he was a big promoter of... Uh, not being part of this, uh, you know, tribalization of the religion. Um, if you ask me, and I, I probably won't make too many friends like this, I noticed in him, at least before the before the uh, election of uh, Muhammad Morsi, in Egypt, um, he started to notice that amongst the Muslim Brotherhood, who he had grown up and been very beneficially affected by the writings and the, the teachings of Imam Hassan al-Banna, al mm-hmm. um, that... You could see he started to see that there's been a politicization and a certain kind of factionizing within the Muslim Brotherhood and certain prioritization of things and attitudes that are that are kind of losing the wholeness that was originally the principles of the teaching that was trying to um, being brought back. Um, but of course, when when Muhammad Morsi won, you know, he was hoping and excited, and he did that beautiful sermon at mm-hmm. uh, the square. And um, you know, unfortunately, reality has it the way way things went down after that. You know, may may Allah guide us and and mm-hmm. revive us back to a place where we're worthy of 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 his uh, contentment and his support in in every way. Um, But yeah, you know, that's, I think, I think he started to see that he just needs to be the scholar who's not affiliated. I started to, I've I've noticed that in in some of his later statements and things. And when he was challenged about his affiliation, some people saw that as selling out. uh, But I think it was just him being him that we need to avoid. um, And that's what I've come to like, group think is a very dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of traditionalists say, well, you know, this is the madhab. Well, we're talking about not just in, so in jurisprudence, you can follow whatever opinion you feel convinced of, but don't start telling others that they have to follow any opinion. You see what I'm saying? Don't tell others that you're not worthy of being a true Muslim until you follow these scholars, or if you follow these opinions and not those opinions, because that's one of the richness. That is one of the richness elements of of, of our uh, of our tradition that we carry in the light of the final prophethood. Is that there is this clarity that's supposed to be interpreted all over the place until the end of days, where it would be principally applicable to all kinds of circumstances. So to just copy and paste things that were written a thousand years ago overseas in a place that was ruled by a theocratic rule and everybody was all mostly Muslim and the world was in a perpetual state of war and there were so many different realities affecting how those scholars were thinking, we need to look at you know how we're going to address reality as we live it, live it now. And that's one of the things that those who refer to him, which are many of the modern top scholars, refer to him as Mujtahid al-Asr. The like basically the Abu Hanifa or the Shafi of our days, like the one who showed that he had the capacity to speak the meanings of revelation as applied to the unique circumstances of our time. You know, it, you know, I think there's one thing interesting that we definitely do have to note, right? Because you know, that's the world of extremes now. And I would say, is it balanced? I don't know if it's balanced yet, at least in my view, in the world I grew up in, right? You have the side that says no madhahib, right? You don't follow any madhahib. You just you Quran and Sunnah, right? Okay, those are the that's your opinion, mashallah. You got the side where some are like still follow madhahib and things of that nature, but you don't want to do any um uh 
uh, was it? What's the word? Is it taasub? Uh, 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 where you do bigotry? Yeah, you taasub is sticking with the madhab and saying that we should not use any other. Yeah, just to say one imam. Oh, this imam, imam Abu Hanifa is the only imam you should follow. The rest are just, no, right? There's this. You know what's beautiful is during the time of the Prophet sallallahu because he was there, he encompasses all of the knowledge of Islam. So we don't need to have madhahib. You have a question, you just go ask him directly, right? Yeah. But then due to different circumstances and different opinions, this is how you get these different schools of thought, right? And even inside the schools of thought, there's varying opinions, right? So it's, yeah. it's uh, 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 you know, one thing my sheikh says that I love that's beautiful, you know, of course, you should uh, learn a madhahib to learn the basics, right? Follow up uh, just the basics to get you in the door, right? But don't, Say, oh, you only have to follow this way. and not. If it's another way that fits a situation that you need in another school of thought, it's valid to help you and follow that you follow, right? Like it, you don't want to go uh, follow something that may put you in a worse situation, right? Like if you think about what that hadith of the companion who had the injury and then the other companions, one companion told him, oh, you should make wudu. You have to make wudu so you pray. He made it and then he died. And the prophet made a bad dua for him, right? So he said, you killed him. You killed him. He accused him of killing him. So I, mean, I think this issue is one of those modern kind of divisive realities that if we look at it, um, and it's it's just simply historical reality. It's not like, so there is no question at all that there was no reference in the Quran and the Sunnah. You open up, فَسَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ The Quran does not say, فَسَلُوا شَيْخًا وَاحِدًا There's no indication anywhere in the Quran and the Sunnah. We see the companions and the followers, that they would listen to different scholars and decide. But throughout our history, we had a beautiful, divinely ordained scenario in which particularly four, four scholarly traditions that codify the entirety of fundamentals of law so that we can draw from that very easily and access what because it makes no sense to tell any modern person that you just follow the Quran and Sunnah. Mm -hmm. You would have a very hard time doing that. That's next to impossible. Um, you you should listen to the scholarly interpretations, and whenever you become aware of it, then you will follow the scholarly interpretation. Uh, and if you find another one, then you're fine to follow that. It was political expediency that led to the widespread position of sticking to one school of thought. Because in the Muslim world, there was so much uh, broadness all over the Muslim world. So scholars basically agreed amongst themselves to preserve unity in our context, if somebody who's a Shafi'i scholar uh, comes walking or through, you know, traveling through the Hanafi area, or uh, somebody following Imam Malik comes through the Hanbali or, or vice versa, we we just want to respectfully, okay, this is the place where we're at, and so I'm just going to go along with this, even though I'm not convinced with it, just to maintain unity. Right. That still works to a large extent in some Muslim countries, but not here in America at all, because we're all mixed up. And it would make no sense whatsoever, which I've seen. And to add to it. your point, Imam, because we live in the West, we have the context of freedom that's implanted in yeah. our brain. So it's like, I do what I want to do. But continue, Imam. I'm sorry. I just want to add that. That's there. But like, if we're going to maintain the future of Islam here, it is it is irrational with all due respect to those that think it's possible to have a Hanafi masjid and a Maliki masjid. This will, number one, confuse everyone, yeah. and uh, Muslims and non-Muslims. So we need to be able to integrate. And if you want to follow yourself, if you want to follow a school of thought, you're perfectly fine and nobody's criticizing that. 
but to tell everyone else you have to win that is not an actual teaching of Islam. That's where the extremism comes. Mm-hmm. And so someone like Sheikh Al-Qaradawi, he didn't come to recodify all of you know Tahara and Salah and all of the classic jurisprudence. <laughs> He came to teach us a way of looking at things and to classify and codify things that were not dealt with there or things that may have been misunderstood, widespread misunderstood, to show another opinion that has a lot of veracity and evidence to it that because of cut and pasting and parroting throughout our history, people just assume this is the most, this is the strongest opinion simply because it's so popular and written in many books. Whereas when you listen to the other side of it, you're like, wow. Because of the research of such a profound scholar, you're now you're privy to something that is intriguing and the evidence is there. So always the door is open for a believer to follow whichever evidence as is explained uh, from anyone. And that's part of the unity that we preserve in appreciating each other. Sincere. When people say things like, okay, well, what if you go around choosing what suits your desires? As long as it's a scholarly, there's actually a whole book I have written by some other Azhari scholars. Um, a few of them gathered. They, they talked about Tatabu'ar uh, Rukhas. And they talked about how if you're starting to try to put together opinion from different opinions, that's a problem because no scholar said that. But if you're following a legitimate standard opinion that you feel like makes most sense to you from the scripture and it makes things easy on you. The religion talks about being easy in the Quran and Sunnah. So there's nothing inherently evil about that. But if you're trying to find something that suits your desires, for example, that's a different thing, right? So a desire, so you find some strange opinion that allows you to do something like, for example, Zawaj al-Muta. I'll give you a good example. <laughs> you can find Abdullah ibn Abbas mm-hmm. and Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah mm-hmm. making a case that in certain circumstances, travelers can do muta. Mm-hmm. But the, all of the scholars say that is a strange opinion that is not helpful considering the clear prohibition that should be observed until the Day of Judgment, which was finalizing and getting rid of one of the ancient Arab practices that were not meant to be appreciated as revelation, but were tolerated because of circumstances and growing Muslims through to be able to embrace that natural uh, understanding of marriage. Um, so this is where you'll find a problem. But simply saying, you know what, wiping over my uh, shoes and my socks makes things much easier. And here's all of these evidences, and there's plenty of them. And these people are being rigid about the attitude uh, of, of it needing to be a specific kind of sock. And I don't feel the need to be rigid about that. That's mm-hmm. perfectly fine. So these are the type of things that when you read Sheikh al-Qaradawi, um, you know, like, for example, you mentioned uh, Sheikh uh, Yasser al-Qadi. Mm-hmm. I love him because he's broad and he takes from here and takes from there. Mm-hmm. And he brings you this perspective drawing from that tradition. And so I've seen, you know, uh, people challenging him on things. But the thing is, listen to the evidence. That, like, for example, Sheikh Qaradawi, he has the position that gelatin is not the same as collagen. And so wh- whichever source it came from. And there's many scholars who took that position in the modern time. Sheikh Yasser is saying, no, I've chemistry background. Mm-hmm. There's something in there you can find, you know. And so some would say, is that how we're supposed to, like if you went into vinegar, which are, we're allowed to use, which used to be alcohol, could you find elements of alcohol? Maybe you could. So like there's different ways of looking at it from different people. And whoever wants to be convinced is fine. Don't 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 have to call somebody out or try to criticize them in some demeaning way because they choose to be convinced on some subject. And that's where Sheikh Al-Qaradawi was very adamant about being bold to say, I believe this 
and mm-hmm. here's my evidence and here's the here is the methodology by which I came to this opinion and then it, and then those have that opinion and that's fine you know and that that's where we need to come to as an ummah if we're going to succeed you know imam john the thing that seems to highlight all of this is critical thinking right it seems that it shows that the sheikh used a lot of critical thinking because one thing that's beautiful about you showing your methodology which is you can almost argue it's just as important as the result that you came to is to show that because it shows the train of thought so those who may think similar or those who that may make sense to them, they say, okay, I see how you got this, this, and that. It follows this order. Okay, this makes sense. All right, if somebody follows that train of thought, they look at it, ah, don't, they make an argument against it, right? But it's all critical thinking and steel, iron sharpens iron or steel sharpens steel, I should say, right? Somebody may refute that. And if they have strong proofs and whatnot, it, it builds for a better conversation for us to get to the truth. Because, you know, with the fic, right? There are certain things we know because of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi 100%. This is what it is. Other things, it's like estimations, really, right? The fiqh isn't necessarily we know for sure that because you came to this conclusion, this is what it is, right? Well, everything we have to say, wallahu alam, right? Because Allah knows best about these things, right? Go ahead, Imam. No, no. I mean, this is where, you know, like, for example, Ibn Taymiyyah in his time, rahimullah ta'ala, he was put in jail and ostracized and called a heretic and all of that. And... He was challenging many status quo. He was challenging the vast majority of scholars of his day. Mm-hmm. So like all of the grand scholars and the traditionalists and all of that, he challenged them in many, not just in creed. He also challenged many juristic rulings and many of his juristic rulings now are standard and everybody, you can't, you can barely go to a mosque and hear a khutbah without hearing waqala Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, right? But back then... And that's what's going to happen with no doubt in my mind about Sheikh Al-Qaradawi. All these detractors that don't know who he is and they haven't read what he has written. So like I got sold when I read um, his his book, Kayfina Ta'ama Ma'al Qur'an. How do we deal with the Qur'an? Mm-hmm. This book just really blew my mind in how he put, like it, it reads as like a very deep analysis of it, but it also reads almost like a book on ulum al-Qur'an, the sciences of the Qur'an, which is a traditional style. But instead of following that traditional route, which sounds very academic and scholarly, he made it plain for people to understand, but not plain like simpleton talk, but like deep analysis for the common person to really build a relationship with the Qur'an. And he brought out one point about the Ummah today in that book that really hit hard with me. Is he said, I've traveled all over the world and I've seen thousands of Qur'an competitions. And the Qur'an competitions, if you think of that, that phrase, you think of memorization and beautiful recitation, right? Mm-hmm. So he said, but I have yet to find anywhere where there's any competition of who can explain the tafsir of the Qur'an. Who can explain the meanings and application of said ayahs when they're tested and challenged on any ayah? Who can do that? Who can give you the, the subtleties and the linguistic connotations and the juristic principles and the the, the character uh, you know principles and why at the end he mentioned these two attributes and not those two? Like who? Why are we not doing that? He said because the Quran opened itself up as the answer to Surah Al-Fatiha. kitabu la huda This is the answer to Ahdina Surah Al-Mustaqim, the Quran. But we've turned into almost a talisman, an amulet. Wow. It's like, let's see how beautiful it sounds and how much you know of it, but in terms of memorization, but like application, he said, we need to start doing this on on, on a on a large level to, like Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah, he said, if you find yourself going to an extreme in your character and it's causing problems, and so uh, 
you realize that, okay, so what do we do? We go to the other extreme until we balance out and then we can balance it out. So like his assessment is we need to just, the Quran is mahfuz and Allah. It's, it's not going anywhere. We need to focus everything on understanding and application and principled um, theory of how the Quranic worldview comes to fruition. And so that kind of thing, like, and he, he talked about things like, you know, the shifa of the Quran. And he said, you can you can read ayahs on many types of sick people. And you can get the most pious emails, one of a beautiful resident, and you will not find any of them get healed. He said, so... Why are you understanding? He said, Shifa'ul limath sudur He said, the Qur'an gives a specific clarity about what kind of healing it is. Limath sudur from the diseases of the heart. And it is a type of healing that's spiritual. It is healing us from arrogance, from ignorance, from uh, greed and selfishness and, and anger problems and all of these things and lust. And that's the healing. Uh, doubts and 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 uh, desires that are unbecoming. So he was showing that this widespread opinion in actual practical lived reality, you cannot show it to be the correct understanding. You can literally apply this widespread attitude that is so common and so widespread and show that it's a it's a missed uh, representation of it. And so so many people, if you were to just say the Quran is not meant to be uh, a physical healing, a cure for people um, in the physical way. And he brings up also that the Prophet on many occasions told people when asked about their sickness, he did. He never said, read the Qur'an. He always said, that person knows about that. Or this black seeds, we've heard that they have some benefit. Or honey, or cupping. Or He was talking about modern methods of, of, of medical healing that were known to the people. And he told them there's no... Uh, sickness on the earth except for there's a, a cure so these are type attitudes that he brought out to show that and he even on the whole issue about jinn possession you know he came out boldly and said you know all these scholars are saying this he said but from the quran you can't bring one you know iota of real evidence that jinn you can bring evidences against it and he brings ayahs that i have no authority over you this is iblis talking shaitan talking on the day of judgment allah is telling us how he will say that i had no authority i could not cause any harm to you except for i called you and you listened and followed me right and so he's bringing this point that now we're now quantifying in the brain what was used to be called majnoon means Anybody exhibiting very odd behaviors would be set, would be seen as taken by jinn. And so Isma Maf'ul Majnoon. And that's why they just naturally assume that. And so he's he's showing you things that if you just look at it without the bias of I've heard that so much and I've believed that. You know, and by the way, I've had many mashaykh they told me, okay, you're saying this, Sheikh Qardai, so Sheikh So and so says this. I, I appreciate that you believe that, but I've been at a setting where the person is this. And I said, you know what, Sheikh? I've been at a setting where someone who's mentally ill was there or was on some sort of psych psychedelic drugs and you cannot differentiate between that person and the one you're saying. And the feeling is very weird when someone who's very mentally ill starts talking. I mean, if you go to New York City and you walk on the street, you will meet people that you will like, well, but this person is poor God bless his soul. You know, he's mentally ill. Like he's been through all kind of trauma and has no help and no medicine. And so when he says and does things out of randomly acting, like it makes you feel a sense of disturbance. But we can actually go into his brain and look at the biochemistry. We can give him a pill. And that pill is not a magic pill to take away gins. 
It's taken away a mental illness. So like he's showing things that back for centuries, people assumed, as you said, like Ibn Taymiyyah was asked the same question. They said, is there clear evidence from Quran and Sunnah? He said, other than one hadith in the whole entire, like imagine if jinn possession was as common as it's known in the culture of the Muslim world, surely we'd have many hadiths talking about how this happened, that happened, the Prophet told him he's possessed by jinns, he's possessed, that's possession of jinn. But we literally only have one very seemingly clear evidence where the Prophet told, But does that mean necessarily inside? Or does that mean leave the premises where you're harming that person? So nobody's saying jinns cannot cause harm. Black magic is a known historical fact. It's in the Quran. Nobody's saying harm can't happen. But absolutely, you know, in our in our tradition, we had people coming to a, an actual criminal case. Tambal, I murdered. I did not murder that man. And then the the sheikh and who was the qadi, the judge, he says, yeah, but the people saw you, and so now you're a murderer. He said, but the jinn took control of me, and that's why. And we literally have situations wow. where people said, yeah, I saw him acting and talking, and maybe, and now he's innocent of murder. Suman, you see what I'm saying? Because people are, but so that removes the taklif of the human being. So if we said he's mentally ill, that's different. But we started to see that people could just use that as an excuse. So Allah Adam, you know, you know, again, I'm saying things that I became convinced simply because I listened to what the sheikh said and I, and I compared the evidence and I used to be thinking that the sheikh is like this misguided modernist, you know, person, which is what I was told when I was first introduced to him. And then the more I read about him, the more I listened to what he was saying, and the more I compared it with some of the things that are very standard, I felt much more content as a believer. So that's where I came to that that conclusion that he's bringing a perspective that is crucial for, if I'm going to say it, like Ibn Ashur says it in his commentary on the on his tafsir in his introduction. Um, that the ummah must realize that the world has changed so much in the last hundred years that if we don't ca- catch up, we with too much stagnancy is what held us back and behind. Mm-hmm. If we don't catch up, we'll be just like the Jews and the Christians with all due respect to Jews and Christians. They've lost all sense of any scriptural validity or value. Secular liberalism has taken the vast majority of both of these. And so now we're, we're now we're confused about certain things that we always thought we knew because when you take out God from the equation, when you take out actual reliable scripture and principles of historic revelation, then it's a free for all and morality uh, becomes invalid in its actual sense. And then whatever politics and economy is is bringing to us, we become just kind of drones going along with that with that vibe. No, that, that definitely makes sense. And it's definitely something we need to watch out for, you know, because it's a scary reality that is sweeping the nation. You know, majority, I forget the percentage, but majority of the young people of the West from those backgrounds identify as atheist, right? Or agnostic, you know, some, they just don't know, right? Because they don't have that uh, uh, directing guide spiritually. But to rewind a little bit, Imam, you know, Imam John, you use the term that I want to be able to educate the people on, right? Because, you know, we have a lot of people watching and we want them to know the terms. So they take that and they're able to use it properly. You use the term mujtahid. Please explain to the people what a mujtahid is. Explain what ijtihad is. Explain what a muqallid is. These simple terms so people can get an idea of what it is and where it fits in the scope of the Islamic hierarchy. Because just to go into quick background... As I decided to learn a little bit more of Islam, I'm still learning. Let me not say like I'm some big sheikh. I don't know well, anything, man. right? <laughs> but as you go, you start. As I started to realize, it was like, oh, so you have 
a mujtahid, you have, uh, and then it's a line, right? It's a, it's an order to it. But I never knew it was an order in terms of like how the scholarly arrangement went. I just thought whoever was assumed to know more was who was on top, right? But it's it's levels to it, right? And it's terminologies for those levels. So please go into that uh, briefly for the people, inshallah. So what happened was, uh, obviously the Prophet ﷺ's companions did not go to any Islamic college and get any degrees. They just spent a lot of time around him, listened to him, memorized the Quran, thought about it, reflected on it, and then passed on the knowledge to the best of their ability. And within the Tabi'een's time, we started to notice some kind of principled, codified methodologies kind of slowly coming to fruition. And it was Abu Hanifa anhu, who first kind of codified Islamic law and the legal rulings in an order that is everybody uses it. Like Imam Shafi said, no one is talking about Islamic law except for they owe Abu Hanifa something. Because he basically set that standard as a, one of the followers of the followers, the Tabi Tabi'in, that is now used by everybody. And then Imam Shafi in his time, he wanted to codify like how we derive the rulings, the usul, the 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 sources of legislation. And so he started talking about how rulings are derived. A lot of common Muslims think rulings are just simply people knowing lots of eyes and hadith. That is not what it is at all. It's actually much more complicated than that. The legal system that has been developed over the centuries, uh, but it was really in the first century and a half after the Prophet ﷺ, Pretty much that that whole what we now you utilize within two hundred years after him, it was all established and codified. So Imam Shafi wrote his book Kitab al Um, Kitab mm-hmm. Risala, where he talked about the the jur- juristic reasoning and how do we put all these different principles and you know how the ayah and its clarity or its lack of clarity or decisiveness or not lack of decisiveness hadiths and its authenticity and its reliability and its decisiveness and other hadiths and different opinions of women companions and consensuses and analogies and the customs and the local cultures and how that relates to scripture is it definitive or not is it open and ambiguous there's all these different things that they basically came up with so Abu Hanifa was obviously a mujtahid because when he would explain the law, everybody could see he's utilizing the Qur'an and his limited scope of hadith. And this is not a disrespect at all. It's just reality. Mm-hmm. He had very little access to hadith because hadith hasn't even been gathered yet. Like, mm-hmm. it's just as, you know, like hadiths are through chains that he knows that he relies upon knowing all the political and theological confusions that are going on in his time. So because of that... Um, you know, he was able to communicate Islam and explain things to the extent that his students would differ with him and they would have different opinions and they became mujtahideen within, they, but they would refer to themselves as Hanafi because they're saying that the, the entire methodology that I'm operating within, in which sometimes I come to different conclusions than my teacher, it's still from him because it's not just simply what I know of eyes and hadith. It's how you put it together. So Imam Malik in Medina was doing that. And there's actually been many mujtahideen. Mm-hmm. There's probably hundreds of mujtahideen in our history that are known throughout uh, history, maybe even thousands easily to say. Um, but what happened with Imam Shafi and Imam Ahmed, those four schools, because of the diligence of their students to go and spread their writings and their teachings and everything uh, to everybody, those four became well known. But there's many others. Like when you study fatwa, you pretty much take from about 90 
scholars in our history, al Awza'i, Al-Thawri, Ibn Hazm. There's many, many great scholars throughout our history that were clearly mujtahideen. I mean, recently, Shokani in Yemen, um, that he codified things and took different opinions and gave new analyses of different hadiths and, and tafsir. Um, so we have that throughout our history where someone reaches a level where they have mastery of all of the sciences of law and related to law and their creed is sound. And so it's not by virtue of a diploma, it's by virtue of how well they're able to prove their points and the methodology they use that people see this person clearly is a scholar. And it's it's not something, it's basically the, their, um, their colleagues amongst other scholars. What, and that's where now it's hard to de- decipher this because people are so divisive and, mm-hmm. and tribalized about who's a real scholar and what school of thought and all of that. Uh, but in the old days, they would respect each other and they would know that this is mujtahid. Um, so every every period of our history had mujtahideen. And Ibn Taymiyyah, you know, he was raised in a very traditionally Hanbali uh, family. His grandfather was one of the great scholars of the Hanbali tradition. As a matter of fact, when I was in Kuwait, interestingly enough, I studied from a sheikh when we studied uh, Imam al-Balbani's uh, simple treatise, Aqsa al-Muqtasarat. He has, a, he has a, a commentary on it that has an ijaza going back to the the grandfather of Ibn Taymiyyah, but it doesn't come through his Ibn Taymiyyah himself. Uh, and it goes back to Imam Ahmad in the in the actual you know understanding of the of the of the tradition. Um so but Ibn Taymiyyah differed on probably 20-30% of jurisprudence with the classic Hanbali because he said why should I follow this? Why should I believe this when this is what this says and this is what this says and these are the eyes and this is the derivation methodologies? So that's what ijtihad is. And, and Sheikh Al-Qaradawi, he proved himself in many ways. Um, first with his Zakat treatise, which was his PhD dissertation. But after that, he basically, one of his one of his great highlights of his career is Fiqh Al-Aqaliyat. Mm-hmm. Him and Sheikh Tahir Jabal Al-Alwani um, and, and some others. But he was pretty much the one who listened closely to the Muslims in Europe and America and Australia. And and he listened to what they're facing and he listened to their kind of pasting of traditional rulings and how that's bringing problems to their life or talking about things that, that, that isn't mentioned in the traditional jurisprudence and things related to the legal system that they live under. So he, he said, it makes no sense for us to just simply cut and paste rulings from traditions that were written in a theocratic law where the land was pretty much all Muslims and non-Muslims were, were known as either um, c- citizens of the state who were under the protection and given their autonomy um, or they were enemies from the outside trying to fight us and destroy us with their empire um, from the outside. So now we have a totally new dynamic where Muslims are living as a minority and so they, they started to develop jurisprudence. And one of the interesting things is the very famous fatwa, and I'm not giving a general fatwa for people to follow. I'm just simply telling people, you talk to scholars locally and look into your situation. They can advise you the right way and and pick what you feel makes sense. But, you know, back in, I think, in the early 80s, he came with the fatwa that Muslims living in the West paying rent every month, rent, 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 and there's no Islamic option. They're just throwing money down the trash. And the reason why they're doing this, because they're saying buying this house is interest. So he looked into it and he brought up opinions from Abu Hanifa. He brought up opinions from other scholars. He brought up uh, principles of Islamic legal theory. And he said, the point of this prohibition was not to make the economic mobility of people difficult. 
If that's how it's being applied, then somebody's not understanding the purpose for the legislation. So I'm permitting people who have no other recourse to buy a house because after 20, 30 years, they own the house. Or even 15 years, if they sell it, they're going to own a lot of that and their kids will inherit it. And it gives the economic mobility preserving the the wealth, which is one of the five fundamental objectives of Islamic law to preserve wealth. Um, whereas if Muslims just follow the strict, rigid opinion um, that we could go in deeper, but not, that's not what we're going to try to do on this podcast here. Mm-hmm. Um, he was saying, I see harm coming from this. If you're seeing harm come from applying the Islamic law, you probably don't understand the Islamic law. And Ibn, I mean, Abu Hanifa started that. Um, it's it's well known that Omar suspended the, the, the literal teaching of cutting hands off of thieves because he found out these were just some noble farmer people who are generally good people of faith, but there's a huge drought. And they were in their culture. They're not going to go begging for zakat. And so they went to steal barley and wheat to feed their family, you know. So Omar was asking the people who wanted to take their hands, why did they, did they steal? And they weren't thinking that should be asked. He said, no. He was teaching people fiqh al-waqa, al-ma'al, al-manat, deriving what's going on in the reality and how we apply Islamic law to the people because of their situation, which the Qur'an talks about. Um, and so we saw that with Abu Hanifa whenever he started making each istihsan where he said, it's a der- derivational method where if we see that the literal teaching of the Prophet is causing harm to believers, then we can suspend that because we see it's not applicable here. There was a wisdom for that ruling that fit in his situation, his time, that is not applicable here. And they took a principle from this, that the rule will follow its justification in the law. If it's known what the just- justification is, then if it's in a different situation, then we need to still apply the ruling. If the justification goes away somewhere else, then the ruling will go away with it. So that we, that that's basically how how he was applying that. So back then, that was heresy. I mean, literally, boatloads of scholars wrote refutation. How is this? He's opening up riba. He said, and he did. He makes it crystal clear in the fatwa. I am not saying riba is permissible. I am using a necessity um, ruling in the principles of jurisprudence to give a fatwa for a specific situation, and and this is what I'm saying. And so now. Large bodies. I mean, I, I'm not going to throw any specific, but I know some local scholars here in America that back in 2003, 2004, is wrong. Nobody should ever buy a house. And all these Islamic so-called banks are false and bad and wrong. And you shouldn't do it. We should be pious. Those same scholars now, 10 years later, are all giving this fatwa. Oh. They're all following. And so what happened was not that they sold out. That's how common Muslims are brainwashed with this kind of my sheikh versus your sheikh. My sheikh can beat your sheikh up attitude that they're not realizing that what happened was those scholars went from the ideal of what Islam should strive to in its building of its own society and controlling its own economics to the actual reality applied of the people and how Islam is is dealing with their situation. And so they became privy to things that Sheikh Qaradai was doing 30 years before them. And that's where we find him, who he is, uh, rahimahullah ta'ala. You know, it, it, it's very interesting to... Uh see how uh, far ahead of his time he was in a lot of things, right? Now, of course, like, that's just one example of many examples. There's different examples we've heard of, different fatwa he's given that some people are like, what? How could you say that? That doesn't make sense. But then they look into it. So let me ask you this, Imam, right? For people who are sincere, people who want to learn, people who want to know more, they'll go up, they'll look up these things, they'll research into the shaykh. 
But let's just say for a good portion of the ummah, let's say they aren't as uh, uh, open to going to look into the things. What is something you would tell somebody to look into the life of Sheikh uh, Al-Qaradawi and looking into his teachings and, and learning more about him? What's something you would say to somebody who's like, ah, that Qaradawi guy, Allah uh, but I don't know about him, or astaghfirullah, he's bida, or I don't like him, he's misguided. What would you say to somebody to get them on board to at least learning one thing about the Sheikh? I would say he has written a whole entire library. Like you can literally fill many um, bookcases with his books. So somebody who spent that much time studying and teaching Islam, who was at the top of his class of all students in his uh, bachelor's, master's, and his PhD, and has been lauded by people who, so like Muhammad Adedo Shanqiti, he is known as one of the foremost traditional Muslim scholars of the Ummah. He's a Maliki jurist. He 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 is a Maliki mujtahid, uh, meaning he sticks with it. Maliki jurisprudence. Has many mm-hmm. within the Maliki tradition of schools of thought and and different approaches. But when he was asked about Sheikh Al Qaradawi. He said, this is clearly Mujtahid of, of, of Al-Asr. This is our time that we're living in. You know, I don't agree with all of his opinions. He made it clear. Like he showed you how, like Sheikh Shankiti is known to be like the master of the classical texts, the memorizer, and the one who can explain the beautiful eloquence of very complicated texts. And very, he, he's one of those that still can tell you the hadith and then he'll tell you the whole chain of narration. Mashallah. And he memorizes Mashallah. thousands. Of, like this is the sheikh, the classic sheikh of your traditional camp. He said, look, I have read his books. I have met him in person. I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but he is on another level than I'm on in the religion. And you can't deny that. There is no, not many, if any, scholars living today that have that capacity to speak with the tongue of revelation in a very eloquent way, meaning to reframe things in fatwa that fit situations and deal with subjects and reframe arguments that, that people most people would not be able to do that or would feel confident to do it, right? And so that's the thing that, that you know, I feel like... Um, but at the end of the day, every Muslim should look for evidence, no matter what they're doing. The Quran is telling us, "Hal albab." Can we, the one who knows and the one who doesn't know, um, are not the same? Only the ones who will truly understand the value of knowledge are those who think rationally with a spiritual intention. If you're doing that, you will come to know, like. Because of the influence of the shit, I've probably changed opinions on things in the last 10 years dozens of times. Some people in my community say, didn't you say a few years ago this? And I'm like, yeah, I came to find out this, and now that's why I'm saying that. And they're like, why? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put anybody down, but I'm still reading. I'm still analyzing. I'm still downloading you know, lectures of, of prominent scholars, and, and I'm listening to what they say. Many people get their get their bachelor's or whatever, and then they just go teach for the rest of their life, and they never keep studying. And these are many of the imams of the mosque, because I've talked with them, and whenever I challenge them on a certain issue, they just give me a cut and paste, and I'm like, but are you aware of this? They said, no, 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 this is not what we know. This is what everybody knows this. And I said, but here's the evidence. And then, so we see that that, that, that stop has happened, that people like Sheikh Qaradawi, you know, I remember one time, I was asking my sheikh, I was trained in the Hanbali jurisprudence in Kuwait. I said, how does it say Imam Ahmed Riwayatan? 
Why is Imam Ahmad, I have so many issues where they say this is the ruling and Imam Ahmad has another opinion. And these are two different opinions of Imam Ahmad. He told me, he said there's two, two reasons. He said, number one, Imam Ahmad was uh, Imam al-Hadith. He was the teacher of Ibn Majah, Nasa'i, and Abu Dawood, and all of those guys. Those are his students. And so he would come to know new hadith that informed him that he had derived rulings and taught them the wrong, different way. And sometimes he came to the conclusion that I'm being out of piety. It could be one or the other. So this could be true. And that also, there's, there's, there's merit to both opinions. And that's, that's the attitude that Sheikh Qaradawi revived for us. And people need to stop you know, tribalizing everything. You know, that's the power of politics, is it wants to make camps that are opposed to each other so we can control this versus that. But if we're all one people under one religion, under one God, then we need to see that there will be diversity. There will be different convictions. If we're curious to learn, and that's where Sheikh Salman al-Uda, uh, you know, may God relieve him of his calamity right now, um, he showed that in so many ways, and he brought that. And he he talks also about Sheikh Al-Qaradawi's profound leadership. And, and, and that element is being suppressed by powers among us and characters that have some sort of, they have a need for control. When you have a need for control, and that's why we're supposed to say, la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. We don't control anything. We have no abilities. We're not... We should not see ourselves as knowing or holding the truth or able to make things happen or be the correct way. We just are on a journey learning. Mm -hmm. We are on a journey mm -hmm. trying to grow. And the more we live like that, the more we will grow. You know, if, if, we, if we stick with only one understanding, we're not looking to read new, we will never grow. Mashallah. You know, as a sportscaster, I forget which one. I think it was Colin Cowherd. But he said, you know, the smartest people in the world are constantly changing their opinion. They're constantly updating because you're constantly getting knowledge. You're constantly learning, you know? And that's one thing we should definitely keep in mind as Muslims, right? Like the Prophet Sallallahu said that, uh, you know, learning upon Muslims is far with this wajib. Like we have to keep learning, right? So as you keep learning, you're going to think differently. You're not going to have the same opinions that you had from 20 years ago. I would hope that you don't. Maybe on the core things, of course, right? Like, uh, 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 uh. Tawheed is always going to be one that I know, right? Who is my Rasul? That's always going to be one, right? What is my yeah, deen Islam? But, you know, there are different things you'll change your opinion on. Okay, after learning, seeing situations, maybe you travel, you know, things won't always be the same. And I think that's something definitely to note. But, you know, as we're about to wrap up, Imam, let me ask you this. As we just, you know, we had uh, Qaradawi, Shankiti, we had, uh, uh, who some other people you could say notably? Maybe, uh, 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 Sheikh uh, Muhammad Said Ramadan Al-Buti, you know, these different type of great scholars, right, that we've had historically. But they've all come, in, come from the Eastern Hemisphere. Do you think it's possible, do you think it's possible that one day here in the West, we could produce a mujtahid? I mean, I, I, one of my teachers, Sheikh Ahmed Shlebek, uh, Allah Hafizullah, um, he taught me something whenever we were, you know, it was like 2004, and I was about to, you know, move to Egypt, uh, you know, and move on for good after the Islamic American University in Michigan. And he said, you know, as you grow, ijtihad is a normal process that all seekers of knowledge do. Do it within yourself and talk about these things that you feel that you're convinced with the evidence and the proof. And, and, and pass on fatwas that you know of and that exist. And do that for years and, and, and always look for different opinions. 
But it's not like, you know, like I, I would say we do have mujtahideen. I mean, that, that are, I mean, I would say Sheikh Yasser Qadi is mujtahid. I would say that, you know, we've seen ijtihadat from uh, uh, Zainab Alwani. We've seen ijtihadat from, I mean, I'm trying to stick with people born. I mean, Sheikh Salah Sawi is a well-known scholar. You know, mashallah, We can even say the, the, let's use even Europe as well. Just, just the Western, uh, you know, Euro yeah, European, yeah. American type of, you know. Yeah, I mean, Sheikh, Sheikh Akram al-Nadwi is one of the great scholars of our time. Um, some of them don't want to talk in jurisprudence, mm -hmm. but in fikr and in thought, they're giving you their, their and that's, your framing, your worldview is so important. Mm -hmm. If it, We can't just be like, you know, parrots. We, we have to all be thinkers and, and spiritually convinced, you know, heart movers and heart seekers trying to grow and learn in a holistic manner, which is not just simply quoting, right, like learning and opinions, all oh, that is convincing and here's the opinion, but like seeing it from the big picture, like al-masalih al-mafasid. What is the value that this represents? What is the end result of this opinion? Um, so I think I think we have you know scholars. I mean, mashallah, that's what I'm saying. Muzam al-Sadiqi was known to bring opinions, um, and so he recently stepped aside uh, of the leadership of Fiqh Council of North America, and he asked um, Sheikh Yasser Qadi to take over, and that's a, that's a sign of a passing of the baton. In our community, I mean Hatem Hajj, mashallah, great scholar. He's like he made an ijtihad on four hundred one k's that's been very helpful to a lot of people. Um, where he looked at the whole story of that and gave the gave the concession for the concern of piety, even though the generality you can read in his fatwa is that it's not something that we're going out to do with our own, but it's something you're being offered and it's bringing you benefit. And it's, you have to see the, the whole point of what's happening and what, you, what your engagement investment is in, in it. And so I think we're seeing a generation come up. We need to stop. T I remember this thing that I was told in, in one of my new, my new years of Islam, like, oh, he's not a sheikh. He's not a scholar. This has only been Baz as a scholar. And I'm like, so we have like one guy in the whole ummah in the whole world, you know, like, and it's like the word scholar, you know, it just means somebody has mastery of some knowledge, right? And when it says ulama in the Quran, it doesn't mean people with a PhD from Azhar or whatever, or Medina, you know what I'm saying? It means people who have dedicated themselves to knowledge and are passing it on, right? So let's not belittle the, the, the we, there's, there's a balance again, wasatiyah. There's the humility of knowing I have so much to learn. There's the humility of knowing maybe I have a blind spot. You know, I remember, I remember interestingly enough, I've read all these books on creed. I've, you know, studied lots, thousands of hadith, and I was doing a, a convert class, and I was talking about, and then a sister said, yeah, but if somebody dies as a martyr, they go and become a green bird in heaven. So my little Americanness kit popped out. This is like 10 years ago. And, I, you know, I said, no, nah, it sounds ridiculous. I've never heard that before. You know, it doesn't, you know, there's... And they said, no, there's a hadith. And I was like, really? Bring me the hadith. You know. So, so the sister sent me the hadith. She was all sincere. She's a convert of like two years. And here I am, the imam teaching. And she proved me that there's an authentic hadith. That said, and that's what it is. Who's to stop Allah from making somebody a green bird in heaven? I'd love to be a bird. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but at the time, it just seemed weird. So I judged in that way and I learned, but I was willing, I could have, I could have easily said, this is, this is completely wrong. And then not even told her to give me the evidence. And then I would be an invalid teacher to her. 
Um, but, you know, I mean, there's other subjects, you know, I won't bring up here because I've talked to some folks and and, 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 uh, and, and I feel like the, there are some things that we really need to reassess because if you study it, it's so widespread and common. But when you dig into it, you find that these subjects actually have a whole nother element of why, like a lot of things we think and a lot of things that were written in jurisprudence books and in even tafsir books is just a lack of big picture knowledge. And that when you put things together, you'll see like, we're all saying this and doing this, but that's actually not what was being said. I mean, Ibn Taymiyyah talk, talked about that in many of his fatawa. You know, like when he said, everybody, all the ulama are saying that if some guy said three times you're divorced, then you're divorced. He said, but what a, read the ayah. This is talking about a process. It's called talaq raja'iyah. There has to be a divorce, and then there has to be a, a process in which you look into the validity and the viability of this potential marriage, and then you take her back. And then if there's another divorce, and then you take her back. And then this is not something that happens at one time. It can't be. Now every court in the Muslim world uses his opinion. But all the scholars were saying that we heard that everybody in the Sahaba said that if it's said three times, it's three times, that's done, it's over, it's canceled, Right. So he, he he went back and reframed it, feeling confident. Going back to your original question, feeling confident that he spent all these years studying. So he has to learn new things, and he also has to be confident to say, you know what, everybody's saying that, but that doesn't make it the, the, the correct opinion. So I feel like the more we um, open that curiosity with the gauge of, of humility, that kind of governing humility, that maybe I'm wrong listen to criticism, be very careful not to just assume because I've studied all these things and I've heard so many Mashiach saying that, that it must be right. Uh, and and not assuming that it, it, it or, or not assuming that it must be wrong if I've never heard it or it sounds different or new. Um, so that's where I think people like Sheikh Al-Qaradawi and those who came before him, they had that boldness. And and, I, and I'm not trying to mis, misguide common Muslims to say everybody should become their own mujtahid. But I am saying, I'll tell you something that benefited me a whole lot. I was a new Muslim. And this brother told me, he said, I see you getting confused. You know, is it this one saying that? I became the rope in tug of war, the white convert. Oh, he's ours. This is our guy. You know? So, uh, and he said, you know, until you study things deeply... Islam is natural. If you put it on your scale of good and beneficial and seemingly obviously right with whatever I know about Islam and logical truth, or is it way over here where it seems there's some problem, there's some harm, there's some you know corruption in it? If you see that something seems on that side, stay away from it. If it seems close to that side, it's probably Islam is good on that. If it's in the middle, you need to go ask a bunch of scholars until you can figure it out. And what I found out is when he said that, it sounded to me hokey. And then when I got into that kind of, I'm on the haq, you know, I went for like six years with that fitna. Um, I'm still withdrawing from all that. But uh, I, I thought he was a heretic. But now, spending now many other years after principally taking the, the, the sharia from teachers and then continuing in the books and, and so forth, I found that he was correct, actually. And, you know, a lot of Muslims don't want to... Um, stick with the simplicity of bringing benefit versus avoiding harm as the fundamental point of legislation when it comes to law. You know, Barakallah Fiqh, Imam, that was wonderfully stated, you know, that is definitely something that, you know, a lot of people who convert, they have troubles with, right? Just facing the issues of, okay, uh, like, 
I think I was even listening to a hadith today where the uh, someone was asking the Prophet Sallallahu just these questions about you don't have to do this, I have to do that. They're a new Muslim. Like it just seems like Islam is a lot. Um, you know, it just seems to be the case with a lot of people who, when they convert, you know, just trying to figure out where to go, or even the average regular Muslim, right? The layman Muslim, which is majority of the Ummah, right? Majority of us, we don't know anything, or to say we're scholarly at least, right? We know how to. Maybe praise Allah, do do basic things, how to live, you know, the, the pillars of Islam, but to go deep in depth. But, you know, to close up and wrap out this podcast episode, I think the things that we can take today, brothers and sisters, is from the life of the esteemed Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi, is um, having that wasatiya, right? Being upon that middle path in life, right? Don't be too extreme. Don't go too like this. Don't go too like that. But really looking for what is the most balanced view to where I have peace in my life and harmony, but I also avoid harm as well, right? Just because you avoid harm doesn't mean you have to, you, you can't have peace and you can't have something good. And just because you have to get something good doesn't mean you have to accept the harm as well either, right? But looking for that balanced path. And then really developing, which is a really key thing we need in the Ummah now more than ever, really developing our critical thinking skills, you know, really looking as to this to the Quran and to the Sunnah to see how does it fit in the context of our modern time, right? Like, it's a quote by, I believe it's Imam Shafi, where he says, the, the sunnah is complete. All we have to do is follow it, right? Like, there's there's nothing else you can add. There's nothing. But in following it, it doesn't mean we, we just follow it blindly, right? We have to follow it in the context of the world we live in, right? You know, I was just joking with somebody about this. I said, you know, if I take back this iPhone back to the time of the Prophet and the Sahaba and the Tabi'een, some people might be like, like, what is this? Like, wow, subhanAllah, like this is, they didn't have that back then, right? But we have this and this thing causes a lot of fitness for a lot of us, right? So how do we deal with this reality in the context of where we are today? Or how do we deal with the context of uh, uh, many of the things, right? Being uh, Muslimin in a place that isn't Darul Islam, right? We're not the majority. We don't rule this land. We're just, we're just here, right? What can we take from that? We have people who uh, have identity issues. How do we deal with that? And how do they view themselves and things of that nature? But developing those critical thinking skills to open our minds to the meanings that the Quran has, right? These ayat, because the meaning is there. It's just our minds haven't opened up to see what. What is more there, right? It says Iqra, but what else does that mean? Okay, you know, it, what 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 does Al-Kitab mean? Like, what, these realities, you know, just definitely open that up. And I think the other thing is basically, you know, keeping unity amongst the Muslimin, you know. How do we keep each other as brothers and sisters despite disagreeing? You know, if Imam John says something I disagree with, how do I keep from saying, oh, this guy, Imam John, I can't listen to this guy, astaghfirullah, refute this guy or... You know, a lot of some people they're on the extreme. They'll declare takfir on you. Say, "Oh, this guy, he's uh, oh, yeah. he's, he's not Muslim. Don't don't listen to this guy." Right? <laughs> which is a very scary thing to do, which you shouldn't do. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know. But if you even look at the example of the the four madhab the mujtahid imams, they had different opinions, right? But they all respected one another. And if you even look exactly. at the time now of Sheikh Al Qaradawi and his uh, his peers, Bin Baz or Uthaymin or Sayyid Ramadan al Buti or Shankiti, all these guys, they respected each other. It wasn't. Uh, nah, nah. No, because at the end of the day, we all have to, we all will pass away and we'll all be asked for those things that we did, you know, what all we said, rejected, all, everything will be brought before us, right? And we'll be there and judge for it. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind. Um, Imam John, I like to say, Barakallah Fiqh, thank you for uh, uh, educating us today on the life of the esteemed Sheikh, uh, Sheikh 
Yusuf Al-Qaradawi. Um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy on his soul and grant them Jannah Al-Firdaus and peace in his grave. Sheikh, before we go, this one thing I, I do want to uh, continue that I started with the podcast. Please, sincerely, um, I ask you, uh, for the sake of Allah, so I collect ajah and you collect ajah. If there's any ayat or something from the sunnah you want to teach one thing to people that they can carry on from the life of uh, the sheikh, what would that be? I mean, I, I know we said a bunch, but one thing maybe that's simple, practical, they can take and practice every day. It's a hadith. Uh, the Prophet Sallallahu said, Al-Mu'min al-Qawi khayrun wa ahabu ilallahi min al-Mu'min al-Da'if wa fi kullin khayr. Ihras ala ma yanfa'uk wa sta'im billah wa la ta'jaz. So the Prophet Sallallahu said, the strong believer is better and more beloved to God than the weak believer. But in all believers is good. So be adamant in working hard to that which benefits you and never claim to be weak or hopeless or helpless. And that is the life of Sheikh Qaradawi in one hadith. Truly those who said, our Lord is God, the one and only. Then they stuck to the straight path. That you should not, if you're on the straight path, sticking to your faith to the best of your ability, there's nothing to fear on the day of judgment. There's nothing to be sad about what you're losing from this world. Because the characteristic that he took, that this ayah comes later to explain who are these people, he says, Woman so who could be better? And this question is to say, strive for this thing. Who could be better in speech than one who calls to the path of God while working righteousness and says to the people, I'm a submitter. I'm here doing God's work. That's what I'm all about. That's what I'm promoting. That's what our mission is in life. And that person is going to heaven. So may Allah preserve all of us on that straight path. Mm-hmm. May Allah give Sheikh Al-Qaradawi the highest level of Firdaus Al-A'la. Mm-hmm. May God bless us all with a sense of depth and unity of understanding the beauty of Islam as we all relate to each other and learn from each other. Give us the growth and the development that will lead us back to a place of greatness in the world. As Sheikh Qaradawi has paved a path for us, we just need to walk and work on that path, inshallah. So brothers and sisters, please check out the Revive Pack that we have coming out today. Also, please check out Muslim American Society today, a wonderful organization in Jamaat who is committed to doing work, Fisabillah, and just reviving and teaching and spreading Islam in a positive manner, in a manner that can help your life. Please share this video and share the organization with Muslim and non-Muslim friends. Let them learn about it, learn about the movement. If you want, like to learn more, you can uh, look up uh, MuslimAmericanSociety.org. If I got the website wrong, they're going to be upset, but I love my team. <laughs> look that up, MuslimAmericanSociety.org. Please look that up today. This is the episode. Once again, please check out the podcast. Subscribe on YouTube, Apple, uh, Spotify, Barakallah uh, Fiqh, Imam. And to everybody, I like to say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.